morning, everyone. So, uh, how many people have seen Big Fish? All right, about one more person than Babette's Feast. <laughs> so, I win, Eric. Uh, Big Fish is one of my favorite movies. It's uh, a whimsical story about a sickly father uh, and his estranged son trying to reconcile before the father dies. And the, the reason for the rift between the, the father and the son, and that was the encounter that caused the rift, was that the son could not connect the deeper meaning behind the stories that his father told. He couldn't reconcile the, the, the imagery that the father used to communicate the heart and the soul of the experience with the probability of the actual event happening. And this movie, I believe, poses such a great question. It poses a question that people are faced with every day, a question that every single human being ever to walk this planet has asked themselves. And that question is, is the physical world all there is, or is there something more? Right? Every single buddy. Every single one of us have asked that question. Every single one of us that have put our heads on the pillow at some time in our life has asked, is this all there is? Is it just work and, and, and play and, and uh, eating and sleeping and, and, and that's it? Or is there something more? It's the thing that makes us human. Like my dog, my old dog, he passed away, but his name was Gretzky. He was the great one, the great dog. Actually, he's really stupid, but, but uh, he was named after the great one. Gretzky never asked that question. Gretzky was more than happy to sleep and eat and other things. He never asked the question, Mark, master, wise one. Is there more to my existence, or is this all there is? And I would have lovingly looked at my dog Gretzky in the, in the little cute, puffy face. Say, that's it, man. For you, that's all there is. But for the rest of us, and especially for those of us who are, are followers of Christ, this is a big question. In fact, we, we've, we've bet our whole worldview that there is something more, that there is more than this table, there is more than this microphone, there is more than these lights in this building, there is more than Tallahassee, there is more than the food that we're going to eat after this gathering, there is more than the next promotion, there is more to life. And I think for, for us, this is where, where Jesus really comes in and he shines 
where, where Jesus comes in and tells stories. Actually, Jesus tells fictitious stories about the real love of God. And there's something beautiful about poetry and music and imagery that transcends the physical and actually gets to the truth. Like, how do you talk about, in a physical sense, grace? How would you explain it? What does grace smell like? What does grace feel like? Can you explain it to me? Can you tweet it in 140 characters or less? You probably can. We just sang a song about it, right? Grace like a river falling down. How sweet the sound. It's a complete fabrication. Right? I mean, grace is not falling down. Grace is not... Sweet the sound, you you can't hear grace. It's imagery to tell us to open up the window to a deeper truth that grace is like a river and the grace from our God is, is flowing. So much so that we can't even contain it. And this grace that is flooding us like when you're hot and you jump into a cold river. And it's just rushing by you and it's so strong and your legs are coming out from us that there's this sweet just sound to it and it's refreshing and, it, and it's so much more than unmerited favor. Right? And this is why Jesus told stories. He told stories about eternal treasures and he talked about them in confusing ways. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, he writes, Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to, to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables, such stories. This fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet. I will speak to you in parables. I will explain things, listen now, I will explain things hidden since the creation of the world. And depending on your translation, do you know that about a third of the time that Jesus used a parable, you know what the response was? I don't understand. Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about grace like a river flowing down, how sweet the sound. And it wasn't just the crowds that it was his disciples too. Like Jesus would come up with, with this imagery and they would get hung up with their own brokenness or their life experience and miss the greater truth that Jesus was trying to convey. <clears throat> I was thinking about this and and wanted to talk about a parable today, and not so much for what the parable teaches, but from the idea of imagery as we, as we read Jesus' words. I mean, Jesus never taught 
a crowd without using some sort of imagery, some sort of poetry, some sort of fictitious story to teach a larger truth. So I wanted to pull a parable and just kind of look at it from that kind of vantage point of, well, how, how does this teach the larger truth? And, and how, how can we look beyond just the words and actually feel and experience what the Son of God is trying to communicate about eternal treasure. So what I decided to do is to talk about not only just one parable, but three parables. Uh, they're all kind of teaching the same thing. It's, it's kind of my favorite, uh, you know, and Jesus' greatest hits and parables, at least for me. This, uh, uh, it's found in Luke chapter 15. And on the surface, the story is about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost kid. But I think as we look at this, we'll see that it's much, much more than that. So it starts out, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Why did they do that? Because he told stories. People like stories. You know, there's no lost or under the dome or anything like that. Your entertainment came from charismatic speakers, people who, who would, who would uh, tell stories that, that would expand your mind and your view and, and your understanding. So they came. In verse 2, this made the Pharisees and teachers of the law complained that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. But it's no different today. Religious people who should be happy when sinners, to use a biblical word, hurting people, broken people, would come to hear about the love and grace of God. But that's unfortunately not the case. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Verse 3. So in this context, Jesus tells them three stories. The first story is this. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what does he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God over the other 99 who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So here, here's the first one. What's Jesus doing here? Is he, is he talking about proper farm practices? No. Does this story have anything to do with sheep? No. Absolutely not. In fact, he's talking about something that really makes religious people upset. 
He's talking really about God's perfect weakness. Now, you might be sitting there going like, whoa, God has a perfect weakness? I haven't heard about this. Yeah, you know what? God's perfect weakness is His love for you and me. That God sent His only Son to go after the one. Because lost people matter to God. So much so, and this is what the story is trying to communicate, that the shepherd would leave the 99 to go after the one stupid sheep. Why do I say the sheep is stupid? I will tell you why. What did the sheep have? The sheep had everything. Had somebody serving this sheep. Would feed them. Would wash his woolly fur. Do sheep have fur? Fleece. Woolly fleece. That's what you get when a guy from Los Angeles is talking to you about sheep. Woolly, woolly fleece. Would give him a stylish haircut for the summer. It was paradise. All the other 99 sheep knew how good they had it. But this one stupid sheep, wander off. I wonder what's over there. It's a wolf. Oh, what's a wolf? You know, and uh, sounds interesting, right? And what the story is communicating, which much to the chagrin of, of the other 99 who are good and staying in the pen and getting their, their shampoo thing going on. The shepherd leaves them unprotected, without food, without their hair treatment, to go after the one stupid sheep. So that's the first story. And he goes on to illustrate the point further. Why? Because they didn't understand. Jesus told them this story. Or suppose a woman had ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there will be joy in the presence of God's angels, even when one sinner repents. So what's this second story about? Is it about a coin? No. In fact, this, this story, as it's trying to convey about what? God's perfect weakness, about, about, about the lengths that he will go to, to show us about the, the char- his character. But actually, in the context of this story, God is a woman, which makes a lot of people upset, and I understand, because you've been taught. But Jesus here is saying God is a woman, not physically, but, but in the imagery that there's this, this caring this compassion, and that she has lost one of her ten coins, which a lot of scholars think is her her dowry, but it doesn't really matter. 
What matters is what she does. She turns her house upside down and cleans every single corner, stops everything. Why? Because she cannot rest until that coin, that person, that sheep is reunited with her. The final story, and it's the famous one out of the Luke chapter 15, is the parable, the parable son, the prodigal son. You're like, oh yeah, we know this one. He goes on, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want to share, I want my share of your estate now before you die. If I was his father, I'd be like, before who dies? But Jesus is telling the story, so. I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, his son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and sent the man and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now remember he's a Jewish young man. So this is as low as you can go. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him any I was on Facebook the other day. It was fascinating to me. I saw somebody posted a, a picture. And they, they posted under this picture, this is the dirtiest truck I have ever seen. And in that, in that picture, you know, somebody also said, what is that um, Krispy Kreme donut boxes in the back of that truck? And in this truck, it was like, filthy with all of these Krispy Kreme donut boxes all, all filled up, and there was this other stuff in the, in the back of the truck and, and all these things, and people are commenting, and I decide I want to be part of this cultural experience. There it is. Those are all Krispy Kreme donut boxes. And I posted, why are you hating on my truck? <laughs> not one like, not one LOL. So I unfriended them. No, I didn't. Uh, I, that's pretty funny, right? They didn't get good humor. So, so they're going on and everybody's commenting about this, this truck and other people are like, oh, I saw that truck and everything. Well, somebody said, well, I'm from the country. And that's a hardworking pig farmer. And what they do is they different restaurants when they have too much and the food's going bad and everything. They call the pig farmers to, you guys know this? Like, hey, you, you, you invite somebody from Los Angeles to the south to tell you about pig farming and pig trouble. This is all new to me. I, I was like, 
Are you kidding? Like, how do I get on that list, right? You know, I got pigs, prove it. No, uh, give me a donut. Uh, so, finally, now that, you know, this guy, so, I, and that's like, and they're all like, oh, yeah, you know, they get pig slop and pig nastiness all, all over, and they're all like, it is like the dirtiest, grossest job, and it's smelly and gritty and horrible. And that's what this kid's doing. This kid was rich, right? He was, he was the heir apparent. He had all this cash, and, and he goes out, and, and he ends up, he wastes all on wild living. Totally turns his back on his father, turns his back on his faith, and he's at the lowest of the low. In verse 17, he says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, self, at home, even the hired hands have food enough to spare, and I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, you ever do that when you totally messed up and you like rehearse what you're going to say? This is what I'm going to say. It's going to be so good. Well, this is what this, this genius here came up with. Father, this is what the son's going to say when it comes. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm sure he had hand signals too. Please take me on as a hired servant. Pretty good speech, right? I mean, he's totally messed up. I mean, he'd gone to his father. Hey, you're about to die. Can I have the money early? I'm going to go and do all this kind of stuff. I mean, all, you know, just horrible. So he's coming back. I want to be a servant. I've sinned against fine. Okay, great. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. What was this kid just doing? <laughs> Eating Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> and he's covered in pig stuff. Jesus is trying to communicate something about God here, guys. He's like, yeah, one, love the stupid people. <laughs> They're like, okay, you know, stupid people can be fun. You know, I, I, I love the, the people who are just like, where the heck am I? Am I under a bed or I don't know where the heck I am? How'd I end up here? He's like, I love them too. But this, this is ridiculous. This rebellious, foolish son who is covered in pig dung. Who has turned his back on everything. And not only turned his back, but with vile words, rejected his birthright. 
And this is the picture of God that Jesus is trying to communicate. The picture of God before He can say anything embraces the smelly, disrespectful brat and kisses him. And I love this because the son is not going to let that kiss knock him off his big speech, his big moment, right? So he gets, gets this big kiss, and his son said to him, Father, just like he rehearsed it, I have sinned against both heaven and you. Blah, blah, blah. The father isn't even listening, isn't concerned with it at all. His father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robes in the house and put it on him. See, if it was me, I'd say bathe him, then put the good clothes on him. I don't know if Jesus just left that out. I don't know what the deal is there. Hopefully they scrubbed him. But regardless, what Jesus is communicating here is what? God's perfect weakness, his irrational. This is irrational. Love. And I could, I could get up here and tell you, yeah, God loves you. In fact, you know what? You have grace. Unmerited favor. And you all go, hmm, unmerited favor. Mark, do you have the uh, Greek for that? Well, I do. But I'm not going to tell you because I'm greedy like that. No, I'm not going to tell you because, you know what? Jesus is telling a story here. A story that never happened, a fictitious story. So you will know the real truth about God. What are these stories communicating? They're not, they have nothing to do with sheep or coins or kids. They are communicating the length that God will go through to be reunited with His creation, you. In the movie, the son is so incensed with the stories that the father is telling him. And he said, Dad, I just want to know the facts. I just want to know the facts of your life. And the senior Edward Bloom, the father, says, I have told you a thousand facts, Will. That's the son. That's what I do. I tell stories. Then William Bloom, his son, says, you tell lies, Dad. You tell lies. And this is the the tension point that we have, that Edward Bloom, the, the father, is trying to communicate the depth of love and adventure, the emotion, the feeling, the truth. And his son wants to talk about tables. 
toward the end of the movie, Edward Bloom, the father, is about to pass away. They're in the hospital, and the father's doctor is actually a lifelong friend. And the lifelong friend who's the doctor turns to the son who knows that he's having all these issues with truth. And did his father tell him the truth? And Dr. Bennett turns to him and says, Did your father ever tell you about the day you were born? Well, the son said, A thousand times he caught an uncatchable fish. That's the story that his dad told him. The doctor said, No, not that one, the real story. Did he ever tell you that? The son says, No. Dr. Bennett says this, This is how it happened. Your mother came in about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Her neighbor drove her on account that your father was on business in Wichita. You were born a week early, but there were no complications. It was a perfect delivery. Now, your father was sorry he missed it, but it wasn't the custom for men to be in the room for deliveries then, so I can't see how it would have been much different than it had been there. And that's the real story of how you're born. Not very exciting, is it? And I suppose if I had to choose between the true version and the elaborate one involving a fish and a wedding ring, I might choose the fancy version. But that's just me. And then the son turns to him and says, I kind of like your version. You see, Edward Bloom, in this story where he was trying to tell him about the day of his birth, and he came up with this story about trying to catch the uncatchable fish, and the only way that this this treasured fish could be caught was if he took his wife's wedding ring and put it on the fish hook, and he went out and, and with intentionality fished. For him, And finally, he caught the uncatchable fish. And that is how he was born. And what he was trying to communicate to him was that, you know what, son? In the 20th and 21st century, just about everyone in North America is born in a hospital without complications. But I want to tell you the story of your real birth. You know what? That you were conceived not just on a one night of passion or, or alcohol-induced, you know, one-night stand or something like that. No, you know what? I pursued your mother, that she was precious to me, and I loved her, and she loved me. And then we got married, and we made a commitment to one another, a lifelong commitment. And in that commitment and love, in that context where, where we built a life together, Something miraculous happened. We caught the uncatchable fish that you were born, son. And that is the story of how you were born. Which one's true?
Better yet, what's the story of your life? Is the story of your life you were born without complications or you're born with complications? That you went to school, you got a job, you retired, and then you died. Is that the story of your life? Or is the story of your life the story of being an uncatchable fish? The story of you being irrationally loved by God. That He showed the world His perfect weakness by sending His only Son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for us. That we were pursued when we wandered off like a dumb sheep or we were just misplaced or lost like a coin or we were a stinky, rebellious, idiotic teenager who rejected and disrespected God. And that that God in love and grace left the 99 to seek us out, turned his house upside down to find us, and threw his arms around us and kissed us as we were covered in our mess. Is the story of your life of being an uncatchable fish, redeemed by love, bathed by grace, and commissioned by God to be the tangible hand of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like that.